You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Wednesday. Wednesday begins the season of Lent for the global church. It's, it's part of the Christian calendar that many, many churches, denominations are, are a part of that follow the, the story of Christ throughout the year. And um, so next weekend begins our Lenten series for 2023. And what I'll be doing next weekend all the way into Good Friday is I will be preaching based on the uh, passage of the week, the gospel reading of the week. I don't make that up. I don't come up with it. Um, it, it just it comes through the Revised Common Lectionary, and I like the idea of rooting myself to um, to the Christian calendar as much as we can at Village Church. We want to do that. I think that's a healthy thing. We don't always preach on the passage of the week, but periodically we do. And and through Lent, that's going to be my intention. I will be preaching every week on the passage of the week, leading into. Uh, Good Friday. And one thing that we will do beginning uh, next week as we go through Lent, the, the, um, it's 40 days, not excluding the Sundays, but what we'll be doing at the close of each service is we are going to be sharing in communion together. And actually, with that in mind, today I feel led to preach on the topic of communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. It's known by various words. Eucharist just means thanksgiving. Uh, so I want to preach on communion. I haven't done that here at Village. And then we'll actually share communion uh, this morning as well when we uh, conclude our service. We're going to do it differently, though, uh, than we normally have done it. You know, I've never been a fan of the individual plastic communion packets with the little juice and the styrofoam wafer. Um, it's toxic for one thing, but... Um, but I understand why we've, you know, had to do it, and, and, and I, I get all of that. But, but you lose something of um, the meaning and the symbolism of communion. The word communion, it, it comes from the term common union. It's a communal act. And so what we're going to do beginning this weekend is we're going to share from a common loaf and a common cup. Now, before you freak out, <clears throat> let me explain how this is going to work because it's not what you're thinking if you're getting nervous. We have pre-cut bread. It's gluten-free for those that that's necessary. It's pre-cut bread. And then we are going to share from a common cup, but you're going to take the bread and dip the end of it in the cup. You won't put your mouth on the cup. You'll dip the end of the bread, just the end of the bread, not the whole thing, because we don't want your knuckles in there, all right? <laughs> but um, you'll take the piece of bread, you'll dip it in the cup, and then and you'll, so, so, so what's going to happen is there will be a couple right here, Dana and Jason. Dana just found out five minutes ago. And then, and then Carrie and I are going to be on, on one, the other side. Doug and Cassandra are going to be in the balcony. And uh, so as soon as we're in place, you'll be standing, and each row will come forward row by row, starting from the front. In the balcony, starting from the front, but you're going to go backwards. It's, it'll be behind you. Doug, Doug and Cassandra will be there. You'll come forward, take the bread, dip it in the cup, partake, and then you'll circle back to your seat, and, and we'll be worshiping together. And then we'll, we'll close with our prayer for the week, okay? That's what we're going to do. It may, it's just an experiment. It may be an utter disaster. Um, and if it is, we'll never do it again. But I don't think it'll be a problem. I think, I think it's actually going to be a real meaningful time together, especially after the sermon. Okay. 
So I'm going to read this morning. Our text is, is a passage in John chapter 6, and it's a lengthy passage. It covers really all the way from verse 32 to 58 in John 6, and I'm not going to read that entire passage. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw from some selected readings from verses 35, 37, 51, and 56. You can, you can read and study it on your own, uh, but those are the four verses I want us to um, read from this morning. The easiest thing for you to do is uh, to follow along on the screens. Let's look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And anyone who comes to me I will never cast out. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Now, Heavenly Father, we pause this morning. We acknowledge your presence. For a moment, God, we turn our attention to the people of Turkey and Syria, God, as they're picking up the pieces from this catastrophic earthquake. I pray that you would be present to them, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would not just be proclaimed in word, but that they would see the love of God and witness and receive it in the hands and feet of other people god i pray that you would draw them to your comfort and your peace and the confident hope that we have reconciliation of all things as paul talks about i pray that uh, you would be their hope be with them god meet their needs and lord today as we dig into the scriptures we humble ourselves as best we know how We lean in and we aim to hear from you and to receive from you a life-giving word. Speak to the very core of our being and may your kingdom be established in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Christianity is not a Bible study. Christians should study their Bibles. I believe in studying the Bible. Dear Lord, I believe in studying the Bible you might suspect I give an awful lot of time to that. But Christianity is not a Bible study. Sometimes I think we can get the impression or give the impression that Christianity is basically gathering information and facts from the Bible so that we can engage in a kind of biblical one-upsmanship and win our arguments and just know stuff and be smarter than the next guy when it comes to Bible knowledge. But Christianity is not a Bible study. Christianity is an encounter with Jesus Christ. And as sad as it sounds, it's possible that someone can spend their entire life studying the Bible and yet never really encounter Christ. So Christianity is not a Bible study, although Christians will study their Bibles. What Christianity is, is an encounter with Jesus Christ. And by the way, I learned that from the Bible. Because the Bible's very quick to tell me that the whole point is to point me to Jesus. 
That's what Jesus says in, G- in John chapter 5. He says, uh, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. So the scriptures have immeasurable value, but only insofar as they enable me to encounter Jesus Christ. If the scriptures are not leading me into an encounter with Jesus Christ, but rather just filling my head with facts and stuff, then the scriptures have done me very little good. Because Christianity is not a Bible study, it's an encounter with Jesus Christ. And the most tangible way, not the only way, but the most tangible way that we can encounter Jesus Christ on a consistent basis is through the bread and the cup of communion. I want us to ponder this together this morning. Nothing is more basic to the sustenance of human life than eating and drinking. It's something that we attend to three times a day, if not more. Can I get a witness? But we don't approach meals primarily in a utilitarian fashion, like filling up at a gas station or something. We tend to associate meals with joy and fellowship so that we, we, when we gather with our family and our friends on birthdays and holidays and special events, special occasions like our Super Bowl party last weekend, always there's food and drink involved. Always. It's just very, very basic to what it is to be human. Eating and drinking together, shared meals. In fact, it's so central to the Bible story that it's somewhat amazing that it seems at times we overlook it. It's found there right at the very beginning of our story, in the garden. Humanity departs from God through the sharing of an unholy or wrong meal. You can say it like this, we went wrong when we ate wrong. You are what you eat. We ate the wrong stuff and we went wrong. We ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And humanity becomes broken and famished. And we produce Cain capable of killing his brother. There's this separation between God and humanity. So humanity departed from God through the sharing of an unholy meal. But watch this. If humanity went wrong and departed from God through the sharing of an unholy meal, I think it's appropriate and even beautiful that we are reunited with God in Christ through the sharing of a holy meal. And you don't have to be in a rush to get to the New Testament either. It's all throughout the Old Testament. I mentioned Abraham. If you go back to the very beginning with, with Abraham, he's uh, settling near Hebron and he pitches his tent under the oaks of Mamre. And you remember there's this really bizarre, mysterious story where he looks out on the horizon and he sees these three travelers approaching him. And as you continue reading, you, you, you discover that somehow or another, in some mysterious way, these three strangers are actually Abraham's God. That Abraham is encountering his God in the form of three persons. And when these three strangers encounter Abraham, what do they want to do? Or I could say, what does God want to do? He wants to share a meal with him. And so God, in the form of three persons, sits down at a table and shares the meal with Abraham and Sarah. 
Then there's the, the Passover meal, which was so central to Jewish identity and still is to this day. There was the giving of manna from heaven that sustained Israel in the desert for 40 years. There was the peace offering where you would sacrifice an animal, usually a lamb, unto God. You would offer it to God. Uh, but the meat wasn't to be given over to the flames. It was to be eaten by the person bringing the offering because it was a renewal of covenant. There's Moses who after having his own encounter with God on Mount Sinai, he then brings the 70 elders of Israel to the summit of Sinai so that they can have their own encounter with God. And here's what it says. It says they saw God and they ate and drank. They saw God and they ate and drank. And then, of course, there are the, the many feasts. Among them, yes, Passover, but also Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. And others. So, so the Jewish people were regularly gathering together to eat shared sacred meals. It's all replete throughout the Old Testament. But when you cross over into the New Testament, this emphasis on shared meals is not, it's not less pronounced. It's more pronounced. Jesus often proclaimed the kingdom of God as a shared meal. It was one of his favorite metaphors for the kingdom of God. He would tell parables uh, talking about the kingdom of God. It's, it's, a, it's a feast. It's a, it's a banquet. And we're inviting all kinds of people. The question is, who comes and who's not going to come? Probably the most famous among them, there are several, but the most famous is the culmination of the parable of the prodigal son. When at the end of the parable, when the lost son returns, the fatted calf is slain and, and they have this huge banquet feast. But at the end of the parable, it just kind of lingers with this question, will the older brother come? He's invited. He's welcome to the table. But will he come or will he exclude himself? And the parable ends in that um, cliffhanger. And so in proclaiming the kingdom of God, it seems that among Jesus' very favorite metaphors is it's a shared meal, it's a feast, it's a banquet. And we're inviting all kinds of people. We're transgressing all the social norms and the class distinctions. And we're inviting everybody to come, but will they come? So Jesus often proclaims the kingdom of God as a shared meal. But more significantly, Jesus enacts the kingdom of God by literally sharing actual meals with all the wrong kinds of people. Jesus had a habit of sitting at the table with the uncool kids, with the moral outcasts of society, with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. And by doing so, he was showing us this is what the kingdom of God looks like and what the kingdom of God is about. All the wrong people being invited at last to join Jesus at his table. You almost get the sense, if you read the Gospels carefully, that his ministry moves not so much from preaching to preaching, but from meal to meal. Because so much of the Gospel drama occurs around tables. And Jesus is always having a meal with Zacchaeus, having a meal with Simon the Pharisee or someone else. And then on the night before his death, Jesus gave his disciples a shared meal kind of a, a reworking of Passover, a new Passover for a new Israel. And he tells his disciples, I will not eat and drink of the vine again until I eat and drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. 
And then what happens after his resurrection? He keeps showing up at mealtimes. <laughs> having meals with them. Peter in Acts chapter 10, he says, we are the witnesses chosen by God who ate and drank with Jesus after he was raised from the dead. They ate and drank with him. Now, a moment ago, I read from the Gospel of John. I want to talk about the Gospel of John for just a moment. It's my favorite Gospel. I love them all, but I really love the Gospel of John. Because John's Gospel is very different. It's very unique from the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know, we, we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels. It's a fancy way of just saying they're similar. They follow a similar pattern. They follow a similar timeline, a similar outline. They're all very different, and they have their own emphases, but they do follow a similar pattern. But John, who's writing much later than the other three, John does something very different and very unique. He's not similar in, in, in a lot of ways. He's not similar at all to the other three. And one of the things about John is he's an artist. He's not so much a writer, he's an artist. He's painting on a canvas. Or you might say he's a poet of some sort. And he writes that way. And he's painting a picture for us. And John is non-linear. So he's not so much concerned about getting everything in chronological order like you and I are all obsessed with as modern people. We want to get everything in proper order. John does not care about that. John will move things around in order to emphasize certain things. So, for example, you remember the story where Jesus cleanses the temple. He, he go, comes into the temple complex and he shuts it down in this protest, overturning the money-changing tables, and he has a whip and he drives out the animals for the sacrifice, right? You remember that? Nod your head. Okay. Or I'll preach that story. All right. <clears throat> So you have the cleansing of the temple. Well, watch this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very careful to tell us that the cleansing of the temple happened at the very end in his final week in Jerusalem, just days before he's going to be arrested and crucified. In fact, it was the cleansing of the temple. That, that was really the event that sealed his fate. John does something totally different. He takes the cleansing of the temple, puts it all the way at the beginning of his gospel. We find it in John chapter 2. Why does John do that? It's for a reason. It's not gratuitous. What's interesting is when you look at chapter 2, there are two different events, two scenes. In the first one, Jesus is at a wedding party in Cana. And on the third day, that's one of those little Easter eggs. You find them all over John. It's like, it's like one of those magic eye posters. Do you remember those? Where there's, you see it on the surface, but if you look deeper, you'll see some other things. That's what the Gospel of John is. On the third day, they run out of wine. And Jesus multiplies wine in order to keep the party going. Very next scene, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Totally different part of Israel. He's in Jerusalem, and he makes a whip to shut down this temple sacrificial system, at least momentarily. What is John doing? He's, he wants you to make a contrast. He wants you to see the contrast between Jesus making wine and Jesus making a whip. Scene one, Jesus multiplies wine in order to keep a party going. Scene two, Jesus makes a whip in order to shut down a, a worship service. See, that ought to stun you. Because you would think that a religious figure would do the opposite. 
You would think that the religious figure would be at the wedding party and make a whip and shut it down and say, you people need to stop drinking all that wine. And then show up at the worship service and bless it. But John wants you to know we cannot figure out Jesus that simply. And he turns the tables. And Jesus keeps the celebration at the wedding feast going by multiplying the wine. And then in Jerusalem, he makes a whip and shuts down the religious gathering. So I want us to read again these selected readings from John 6. And I'm going to show you yet another instance of John being artistic. Chapter 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Now, John's gospel devotes five entire chapters to one night in the upper room on the night before Jesus is going to be arrested. You remember the whole Last Supper with the bread and the cup and, and Judas, you know, and all of this action that happens on the Last Supper as Matthew, Mark, and Luke include these details. Well, John devotes five chapters to that one night in the upper room, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. But what's interesting is in none of those five chapters does John ever mention the meal itself. He doesn't mention the bread and the cup. Instead, John takes the communion theology of Jesus and he puts it all the way near chapter 6 on the, night, on the day after Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish for the multitudes. And then the day after when he's in the synagogue in Capernaum, he has Jesus saying things like this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. It's very, um, it's very clear and interesting that John is giving us in this chapter, this is where he gives us the communion theology of Jesus. Now put that aside for just a moment. We'll come back to it. But I want to talk about communion. Very, very early on in church history, the church adopted the practice of restricting communion to only the baptized. Only baptized believers were allowed to share in communion. That's very early on in church history, as early as the late first century. And then in the ensuing centuries, as the church splintered and divided into different denominations, churches began to restrict communion not only to the baptized, but to their baptized. So now the question was no longer simply, have you been baptized? The question was, did we baptize you? Or were you baptized by them? That church, that denomination. If that's the case, you are not welcome. You are not allowed to share communion at our table. So that even to this day, if I were to attend a service at a Catholic church or an Orthodox church or even various Protestant churches, as I've done occasionally, Technically, according to their policy, I am to be denied communion. Or to, I'll just say it more bluntly, I'm not welcome at their table. Except that it's not their table. But I'll get to that in a moment. And listen, I, I admire 
every tradition of the Christian faith, and I've, I've learned and gained. Everybody's got something to bring to the table. You know, I, I'm an evangelical, but I, I'm, I'm kind of a theological mutt. And I'll learn from anyone who loves Jesus, and I have. And it's made my faith much richer for it. So I want to I make sure you know that. But I'm going to speak frankly when I, when I say that I view this as nothing less than grievous sin. I understand why they do it. I don't, I don't so much fault the early church. They, they had reasons for doing things the way they did. I understand that. In the end, though, I'm responsible for my own generation and my own time. And whereas I understand what they do, I also believe that the whole thing, and I'm not, I'm not talking about individual people, just the whole system of refusing communion to a baptized believer in Christ because of whatever reason, it, it's great sin. Now, I never complain, I don't blame, I don't create a scene, I don't do anything like that. In fact, I understand their predicament because the actual people who were involved, and sometimes they, they buck the system, God bless those people, but they're kind of caught up in their system and it's beyond their ability to change it. You know, it's a huge institution and institutions don't change overnight, if ever. So I understand all of that, I get all of that, but I still insist that it's wrong. And I'll stand my ground on it. When one Christian will deny another Christian a seat at Christ's table, it's wrong. Am I alone? No. I've heard all of the arguments why. I'm not a novice. I've read their arguments. I've, I know their reasons for it. I just find their reasons unconvincing. And so here at Village, like many, many other Protestant churches, we practice an open table. But it goes even further than that. I'll never forget, two months after we moved here, Pastor Wade preached a sermon on Labor Day weekend. I believe it was Labor Day weekend. He preached a sermon on communion, and I'm going to tell you, it was right on target. But it was also very different than the way that most evangelical churches teach on communion. But one of the points Wade made was that it's not our table. It's the table of the Lord. It belongs to him. And so here at Village, we invite any sincere person to come to the table and share in communion. Now, obviously, we don't want somebody who's just going to come and make a mockery of it or anything like that. But we want any sincere seeker who says to themselves, you know what, I think there might be something to this. We want to welcome them to come to the table and participate in the mystery of communion. Why? So that they might encounter Christ. I mean, think about it. Just do a little thought experiment with me. Can you imagine Jesus sitting at a table and, and a sincere person comes to share at the table? Can you imagine Jesus telling the person, no, 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 you're not Catholic. Go sit down. No, 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 no. You're not Orthodox. No, you're, you're, not, a, you're not a particular kind of Baptist. I, I don't want to give too much of myself away. No soup for you. I cannot imagine Jesus saying to a sincere person coming to the table of the Lord, no, you cannot share in this bread and you cannot share in this cup. I can't imagine it. Maybe you can. If you can, we probably have a fundamental impasse. I just can't wrap my head around that. When I read the Gospels over and over and over again, when Jesus shares meals, who is Jesus willing to sit at a table with and share meals with? Anybody who will come. 
Just anybody who will sit with him. And so that's what we base it on. And, you know, those early church fathers, they might have had a different opinion. And I say to them, I respect that. You had reasons for what you did. I, I don't know what it was like to live in the first, second, and third centuries. But here in the 21st century, we base what we do not on what they did. We base it on the radical hospitality of Jesus' table practice. And we will share the table of the Lord with those whom the Lord himself shared his table with. And that was anybody who would sit with him. I think it's a compelling argument. Let's remember that what Jesus was doing in the first century was radical. There's no other term for it. It was highly controversial in a culture that was obsessed with purity laws and keeping kosher. It was radical. I mean, even Peter, Jesus' closest disciple, had a hard time with this. Peter just could not imagine a Gentile coming to the table of the Lord. Or even him himself sitting down and sharing a meal with a Gentile. He had, a, he had such a hard time envisioning that. So that even 10 years after the resurrection, it took Peter getting a vision from God and an angel talking to somebody else and some pretty dramatic things happening for Peter to finally come to the conclusion that, you know what? You know what? You know what I think? I think it's okay for me to share a meal with a Gentile. <laughs> and even then... He later goes back to his old way of thinking when he's in Antioch. So this was radical stuff. And we got we to gotta recognize the radicality of following Jesus. And it was one of the reasons why Jesus was so sharply criticized by the religious establishment of his day. They called him a friend of sinners. You know, today when you and I read friend of sinners, we think, boy, that's a wonderful compliment they're paying Jesus. That is not what they intended. It was supposed to be a biting insult, vitriolic. They were like, this, this, this guy is going to sit down at a table and share a meal with anybody. Amen. Thank God he does. And it's him we're called to imitate. So, so when I hear someone say, well, we, we need to fence the table, we need to protect the table, from who? Sinners? Are we afraid a sinner's going to come to the table of the Lord? You know, I'm kind of thinking that's the whole point of the thing, is to get a sinner to the table of the Lord. Are we afraid someone unworthy is going to share in communion? How many of you are unworthy? Raise your hands. Is every hand going up? We come to the table as the invited unworthy, never as the deserving. So it's not our table, it's the table of the Lord. And I'm convinced that Jesus would not refuse any person that comes sincerely seeking to encounter him. He would not refuse them. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever comes to me, everybody say whoever. I, I like the way the King James says it, whosoever. Thank you. Whosoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And remember, the context is communion theology whoever comes to me i will not say no 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 soup for you whoever comes to me i will never cast them out listen to what jesus says whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood you see it's it's whoever now whether or not you are a part of the whoever that's up to you but if you say you know what i think i want to come to the table of the lord jesus says then come 
I'm not going to refuse you. Now, someone will raise the question, they always do, what about 1 Corinthians 11? You remember that passage where Peter is correcting the Corinthians about their communion table practice? And he's warning them about sharing in communion in an unworthy manner. You remember that? The whole point of the passage is that the Corinthians were dividing the communion table. That's what they were doing. That's what I'm talking about right now. They practiced communion as part of a larger meal, and the Corinthians were doing it very individualistically so that you had the, the rich, the wealthy, uh, sharing in this sumptuous feast, and then the poor would be at their table, and their eyes would be wide open, and their mouth would be watering, and they had nothing. So they were dividing the church according to class distinction, at the communion table. That's what Paul's upset about. They weren't imitating the radical hospitality of Jesus' table practice. That's the issue. That's what will get you in trouble. That's how we participate in communion in an unworthy manner. When we come to the table and say, I'll partake, but these people can't. These people won't. That's much closer to what the Corinthians were doing, that, that you're afraid that someone... Someone not holy enough is going to share in communion. Who's holy enough to share in the body and blood of our Lord? No one. So we come because we're invited. We're completely undeserving. But we're invited, so we come. Hallelujah. The communion table, rightly understood, is the ultimate undoing of us versus them. It's the hardest lesson for humankind to learn. It's what's fractured the world and brought it to ruin. Is our ever-present mentality of us versus them, us versus them. And the tragedy is that we can take us versus them and bring it to the communion table. But rightly understood, the communion table is the ultimate undoing of us versus them. It's where Christ heals the world of all that divides us. It's where we receive the life of Christ. And so we come. And I invite you to come this morning, every one of you, whosoever will, whosoever desires, I invite you to the table today. You say, Pastor Ryan, I've sinned a lot. You have no idea how wrecked my life is. I have sinned so much. Then repent and come to the table humbly. Jesus does not divide the world between good people and bad people. He divides the world between the proud and the humble. But Jesus is not concerned about a bad person coming to his table. He, he kind of had a reputation for sitting down at the table with bad people. He's not concerned about it in the least. But it's the proud who are going to have problems with Jesus. But if you just come to the table humbly and say, God, be merciful to me. I am so undeserving. Lord, I need your mercy. I promise you, I guarantee you, the Lord is not going to be offended by you. Come and receive his mercy. You're welcome. Come and receive renewed strength. Come and be a part of the world that's being healed of our divisions. Come and be a part of the world that's been forgiven of our sins. Come be a part of the world that's receiving the life of Christ. Because Jesus himself said, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, it's my flesh. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.